Greetings and salutations, fellow humans, and welcome once again to ASM Murder, the only true crime podcast with an ASMR twist. I am your host, The Guru, and today's episode is number eight. And boy, howdy, do we have a good one for you. If you're a fan of older sitcoms, you might know him. I'm talking about the actor Robert Edward Crane, better known as Bob Crane. Being born in the 70s and growing up through the 80s, I, of course, know him from the show Hogan's Heroes. And though I do remember the show, I don't really remember much about the plot or the jokes. I was too young to get either one. I didn't find out until much later in my life that he had died in 1978 inside of the apartment he was using while on tour for a dinner theater production. Honestly, a hell of a way to go. So walk with me a while, fellow humans, as we explore the mystery behind the murder of Bob Crane. Content warning. Today's episode contains graphic content not suitable for some audiences, which include mentions about death, mentions about sexual themes, descriptions of a crime scene, and the state of a dead body. Listener discretion is therefore advised. Some of you, especially the younger among you, might be wondering who Bob Crane was exactly. He was born July 13, 1928, and entered into the entertainment world when he started working in radio broadcasting in 1950. He interviewed Marilyn Monroe, Bob Hope, and Charlton Heston, making a name for himself thanks to his charisma as a radio host. After Carl Reiner, a famous TV writer, appeared on Crane's radio show, Reiner managed to get him a guest gig in the Dick Van Dyke show. This was what started Crane's acting career. Crane became even more known when he starred in Hogan's Heroes as Colonel Robert E. Hogan, and some people say his fame appeared overnight. But we can't really deny his acting skills, which made him get nominated to the Emmy Awards two times. He married his high school girlfriend, Ann Terzian, and had three children with her, Robert, Deborah, and Karen. But even though he was in a relationship with Terzian, Crane used his fame to sleep with other women and take nude pictures of them, which he saved. He divorced his wife in 1970, but shortly thereafter married another woman, Patricia Olson, one of his co-stars in Hogan's Heroes, and had two kids with her. However, issues started after this famous show was canceled. Crane's career declined and the roles he was offered became sparse. That's when he started performing in dinner theaters. In 1975, he appeared on television once again in the NBC series The Bob Crane Show, which was canceled after 13 episodes due to low ratings, and he returned to performing in dinner theaters and appeared in guest spots on television shows every once in a while. Now, I think that's enough for you to get an idea of who this man was. He had a secret, though. It was something pretty well known by people who personally knew Crane. During the recording of Hogan's Heroes, Crane was introduced to John Henry Carpenter, who was a regional sales manager for Sony Electronics and then for Akai, allowing the actor to use photo and video equipment of the best quality. Now, this might seem unimportant information at the moment, but we have to think that Crane was popular with women because of his celebrity status. Carpenter and him soon became good friends, and Crane introduced Carpenter to the women that wanted to be with him. This leads to the secret I was talking about. They recorded their joint sexual encounters without the women's consent, who only found out about the videos once the police contacted them after Crane's murder. Carpenter even arranged to have his business trips with Crane's dinner theater touring schedule so they could continue recording themselves sleeping with women. 
The actor had a tendency to show these videos and images to his co-workers so often that his dressing room was known as Porn Central by the crew of his shows and by his own family, a place in which Crane had saved countless Polaroids, negatives, and X-rated films. His career died once the executives found out about this, but nothing could be done to reverse this. His secret was soon known to the public, and it started getting in multiple newspapers. Crane was killed in one of his apartments that was in Scottsdale, Arizona, in June of 1978. He was living in Winfield Apartments because he was self-producing a play called Beginner's Luck at the Windmill Theater, and his second marriage was starting to decline. He was only getting guest spots, minor roles in a couple of Disney films, and had a failed TV plot, which was the reason he started producing this play. That's how he ended up in Scottsdale. His body was discovered on the afternoon of June 29th as he had failed to attend a lunch meeting and his co-actor Victoria Ann Barry entered his living place to see what happened. But she was met by a room filled with blood from wall to ceiling and Crane laying dead in his bed, his pillow dyed with crimson. There were some traces of blood on the back of the exit door, the front door, the doorknob, and the curtains. He had been bludgeoned to death by a weapon that still remains unknown, although some people suspected that it was a camera tripod. Crane was shirtless when he was found with an electrical cord wrapped around his neck and two gashes above his left ear. His face was almost unrecognizable, so much that police had to contact the apartment leaseholder when Mill Dinner Theater manager Ed Beck to know who his victim was. The Scottsdale Police Department had no homicide division in 1978, and that might also be why this crime is still unsolved 40 years later. This crime scene wasn't treated very well, which resulted in immediate contamination of it. Barry had been allowed to enter the crime scene to answer some calls, potentially contaminating everything, while the medical examiner climbed over Crane's body to shave his head and check the injuries. Even Robert, the actor's son, was allowed inside the apartment while it was being investigated and wasn't told anything when he touched, handled, and examined items in front of the medical examiner. Robert was there because he was supposed to meet his dad the same day that his body was discovered, but he wasn't able to say goodbye. There weren't many clues, nothing of value was missing, and there wasn't any evidence of forced entry, so the culprit's goal had been the murder and nothing else. Carpenter told the police that right before the murder, Crane showed him a book of Polaroid snapshots of naked women, including some that he'd met at the dinner theater. Police were unable to find it in Crane's apartment. It was one of the only things missing. However, police investigated the enormous videotape collection, and Carpenter then became a suspect. He had taken a flight to Phoenix on June 25th to spend some time with Crane, and his rental car was impounded and searched. There was some blood that was of the same type of the actors, B, in the passenger door, and nobody with that blood type was known to have been in the car apart from him, though it couldn't be actually linked to Crane. But as DNA testing wasn't available at the time, the murder weapon went missing. The Maricopa County attorney couldn't file any charges towards Carpenter, although there were witnesses that saw both men arguing the previous evening, just a couple of hours before the murder happened. In 1990, the evidence was re-examined. A previously overlooked photograph of the rental car's interior seemed to show parts of brain tissue, even though the actual evidence had been long lost, or the crime lab at the State Department of Public Safety had never even bothered to pick it up due to them not being actually specialized in homicides back then. 
With this newfound clue, an Arizona judge ruled that the new evidence was admissible, and in June 1992, Carpenter was arrested and charged with Crane's murder. He received a trial in 1994. At this trial, Robert testified that several weeks before his father died, Crane had commented multiple times that he wanted to end his friendship with Carpenter, saying that he had become a nuisance to the point of being obnoxious. The actor's son also said that Crane had called the other man the night prior to the crime, ending their friendship. This could have been the motive that Carpenter had, or so it seemed. Carpenter's attorney argued about this, saying that both men were still on good terms before the murder happened, including witnesses that saw them eating dinner together the previous evening. The prosecutor believed the theory about a camera tripod being the murder weapon, and the defense said that this was just speculation that came from Carpenter's occupation and nothing else, as there wasn't any real clear evidence that indicated a camera was the actual weapon. The attorneys even argue against the picture that showed brain tissue in the car as the police had done a terrible job with handling the evidence and they had many examples of this happening, including the disappearance of the tissue itself. They also suggested that one of the many women that Crane had recorded without consent maybe even be the culprit, or it could have been their angry husbands or boyfriends. Yet some people came forward to say that the victim was usually a calm person and that the women genuinely liked him so much that they wouldn't have wanted to commit the crime. Carpenter was acquitted as there wasn't enough evidence to prove that he was the culprit. He was only guilty of recording and photographing his sexual partners without their consent. He died in 1998. After the trial passed, Crane's son was open about his suspicion of Patricia Olson, his father's second wife. But why did Robert suspect that his stepmother had committed the crime? That's actually pretty simple. Crane and Olson were in the middle of a divorce when his murder happened, and as she was still his wife in legal documents, she was the only one who received the monetary compensation for Crane's death. Robert says that she had won more money and got rid of her husband at the same time, like this was some kind of double deal. Olson had moved her husband's remains without saying anything to his family, which was very suspicious. Things got even worse. The woman set up a memorial website alongside her son Scott, which makes one think that it was a sweet gesture to honor Crane, but its true purpose was to sell the deceased actor's nude pictures and amateur pornos. Scott didn't comment on this website, but soon shut it down and destroyed his father's massive collection of self-made sexual content. He focused on getting his dad inducted into the Radio Hall of Fame. Nobody could prove if Olsen was the true culprit of the murder because she died of lung cancer in 2007 and, to begin with, she was never considered a suspect according to authorities. They didn't believe in Robert's theory even if it seemed pretty solid considering the amount of money that was involved. Robert is still looking for answers to this day even though the only two suspects are long gone. He doesn't speak to his step-siblings and has never talked about his father's murder with his mother and sisters because they refuse to do so. It seemed that he was pretty close to Crane, as he hadn't been able to let go of him. In 2015, Robert even wrote a book about the case titled Sex, Celebrity, and My Father's Unsolved Murder. He says, There's still a fog, and when I say fog, it's that word closure, which I hate. But there is no closure. You live with the death for the rest of your life. Some newer DNA tests were made pretty recently. In November 2016, using the 1978 blood sample from Carpenter's rental car. This was suggested by a Phoenix TV reporter, John Hook, who suggested that newer technology might be the key to solving the murder. 
The reporter said that he always got requests from the public to talk about the case, having written a book about the Crane's crime in which he talks about wanting to solve the crime by use of forensic science, the same way that famed attorney Vincent Bugliosi attempted to do so in his 2007 book about the Kennedy assassination. Hook took special importance to the fact that the jury had believed that Carpenter was the murderer, but there hadn't been enough evidence to send him to prison back in 1978. Hook convinced the Maricopa County District Attorney to do another DNA test just to check if something new appeared. Two sequences were identified in these samples, one from an unknown male and the other was too degraded to get any information from it, but this consumed all of the remaining DNA traces and further tests became impossible. Crane's funeral was held on July 5, 1978 at St. Paul the Apostle Catholic Church in Westwood, Los Angeles. In true Hollywood funeral fashion, there were over 150 attendees, which included family members, friends, and people who acted alongside him, attended the ceremony. He suddenly had an enormous abundance of love right after his death. The actor was buried in Oakwood Memorial Park in Chatsworth, California. Olson later had his remains relocated to Westwood Village Memorial Park in Westwood, and she was buried beside him in 2007 under her stage name, Sigrid Valdi. But why is this case still talked about when there's pretty much no hope of it being solved now that all suspects are dead? Well, that's because even after the popular show Hogan's Heroes ended, it's still being shown on TV as the setting was World War II. It's a timeless show and it's still used as a cash cow up to this day according to Crane's eldest son. Plus, the actor was a good looking man loved by audiences of all times and types. Another reason is the nature of the investigation that revealed Crane's sex addiction and his vast collection of sexual pictures and videos. It also might be captivating precisely because the case is still unsolved, the murderer is still free or even dead, which makes one actually wonder many things. Who was the owner of the unknown blood found in Carpenter's car? Was Carpenter or maybe Olsen the culprit? We'll never know for sure. This case has a moral in a way. No matter how famous a person becomes, sometimes their deaths aren't solved. Culprits are never found. Like I said in my first episode, we can't always have a satisfying answer, and sometimes the bad guy gets away. And as the last remains of DNA samples were used, this case might not be closed for a long, long time. Well, fellow humans, we have come to the end of yet another episode. As usual, let me say it was a privilege and a pleasure to spend my time with you today. I have been your friendly neighborhood crew, and that was episode 8 of ASM Murder. If you want to catch up on any episodes you missed, or you just want to hear more of me in general, you can go to my website at murderpod.net. That's M-U-R-D-E-R-P-O-D.net. I'll leave a link in the description. You can also find my podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed what you heard, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Until next time, be kind to yourselves and be good to each other. Take care.